Jotcast, going well with tea and toast, with Megan Argo, Melanie Gendre, Jen Gupta, Leo Hupvel, Tim O'Brien, Mark Brewer, and Joel Bradman. The Jotcast, October 2011 Extra Edition. Hello and welcome to the Jotcast. Uh, joining me today is Mark and one newbie. Joel. Hi, Joel. Hiya. So, uh, do you want to tell us a little bit about yourself? Sure. Um, I'm doing the new MSc in Radio Imaging and Sensing at Manchester University. What's that? It's a new course um, where we're going to be learning about how to build uh, radio sensing equipment. Ooh, are you going to build telescopes? Hopefully. <gasps> That's so cool. That's cool. That's like getting back to the roots of radio astronomy, isn't it? It is. And you notice it's Joel. With a J. He's a J, like He's Jen. J. Yeah. She's been trying to get J people in to combat us M people. Yeah, but we're still we're still the best. Yeah. Well, yeah. well, we're outnumbering in this show. Before we start anything, I'm going to make another mention of Job Pub London, which is going to be on November the 12th. Uh, we're going to incorporate a visit to Greenwich Observatory in the morning, and then a pub in central London in the afternoon. We still haven't decided exactly where, but it will be on the website quite soon. So if you are in London, it's a chance for the listeners to join us. And for us to get to know them a little bit, and it's in London, so it's a really nice day out for all the jobcasters as well. I want to go, but I'm not there. Can you drink for me? Yeah. Okay. If 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 necessary. Yes, know. I'm okay. I'm asking you to drink for me. Okay, we will we will all drink for you. So in the show this time, we talked to Stella Offner about low-mass star formation and Kirsten Gottschalk about Skynet, and Tim O'Brien will answer your astronomical questions. But first, before all of that, Libby and Leo talked to Albert Zilstra about the latest press release from JBCA. You may have heard that astronomers at Jodrell Bank have cracked the fried egg nebula. Here to talk to us about this today is our director and our boss, Albert Zilstra. So, Albert, could you tell us why is it called the fried egg nebula? The opinions on this differ. One of the newspapers thought it was because the observer was very hungry when he found this particular object. Um, it was named by uh, Eric Lagerdeck. He was a postdoc uh, here before. And when it came off the telescope, and that is two years ago, it really looked like a fried egg. He showed me the image straight away, and it was quite amazing. I've never seen anything quite like it. Um, it is, of course, interesting that someone who's French come up with this name. He's clearly had spent too long in England. <laughs> and what does the image look like? It shows the star in the centre, and there are two rings, two shells around it. In the original version that Eric made, the inner one, the inner two shells, uh, was yellow. And the outer one was white, which makes it even more look like a fried egg. He slightly cheated on the colour table, though. <laughs> Just to really make it look like a fried egg in this image. Actually, in the image I've seen, the, uh, the outer bit looks a bit uncooked. It looks a bit ragged. Yes. Uh, that is true, and it's just what, uh, what the shell is like. So... What was it called before the fried egg nebula? It didn't have a particular name. It was known as an iris source. Uh, it's quite an interesting iris source because it's one of the 30 brightest in the sky and no one had looked at it in any detail. So that's why you chose to study this particular one? It was in a catalogue of possible post-AGB stars. Uh, the post-AGB stars is a very short uh, phase of evolution where a star ejects its envelope and then evolves towards the planetary nebula phase. Objects in between... Um, are quite rare because it's such a short phase and it has been called the missing million years of stellar evolution. Now, one of our co-authors had made a catalogue of possible objects in this phase 
Um, and we observed all objects in that catalog while we were at the VLT. So you took these pictures at the VLT, and I heard that it was uh, one of the driest nights ever at the VLT up in Paranal. Why was that good for the observations? We observe in the mid-infrared, which is a very difficult wavelength range to observe because the sky is so bright. Mm. It is like having all your lights left on inside your, your dome, um, and it's always like that. Now, the drier the, uh, the sky, the air, uh, the more stable the observations become. And this was really an extremely stable night. So what do the, what do the observations show about the object? It didn't show anything that we were expecting. We were looking for asymmetries in shells. It turns out this one is as round as they come. Uh, we were looking for post-AGP stars, and after two years of, uh, of studying it, we decided it wasn't one. Um, it was much more distant than we had thought, and it was a supergiant, not an ACB star. In fact, an even rarer phase of stellar evolution. I think I read that it was a yellow hypergiant. What exactly is a yellow hypergiant, and how giant is it? It's pretty giant. Um, it is not the biggest star I've ever observed. Uh, that was one that we called the monster, <laughs> which we discovered 15 years ago. And that one uh, would uh, fill the solar system to beyond the orbit of, um, of Saturn. Uh, this one is a little bit smaller. Uh, Jupiter would find itself close to the surface of the star if it had been at the position of the Sun. It's a uh, phase of evolution where an, a, a supergiant, and that's the star with a mass maybe 20, 30 times the mass of the Sun, um, begins to eject its envelope before it finally turns into a supernova. And you've got a sequence there where it's a red supergiant, yellow supergiant, blue supergiant, bang. And it might be a wolf a star in between as well. So these stars are losing lots of material in that in these stellar winds, are they? And sort of how much material are they losing? We believe that they lose a lot of mass, but not a whole lot is known about it. Uh, the one that we found in the large Magellan cloud, which we called the monster, uh, was classified as an, a very ordinary giant. And because it lost so much mass, it was completely obscured. And people had missed that fact, and so thought it was far less luminous than it really was. And so a lot of these kind of objects are hidden behind the dust that they make themselves. Uh, this one has a reasonable extinction, but not as high as you might expect. And it's a good thing, because I actually see the darn thing. Hmm. So this Friday Nebula is a yellow hypergiant surrounded by two shells of dust that have been ejected from it in, in its final stage of life before it goes supernova. And how likely is it to go? Is it going to go supernova soon if it's going towards this stage? Oh, it will certainly go supernova within the next few million years. Very soon. So it's one to watch then? Watch yes, you'll have to watch it for a while. Of course, it's not the only object in the Milky Way like this. Uh, there are not so many. It is, I think, in the top 20 or so of brightest stars in the Milky Way that we know about. Uh, there is an, uh, an even brighter one nearby, Eta Carina, uh, which is closer to us, and that one is likely to go bang first, I think. Or if it goes bang, it will be more impressive. Uh, the fried egg is hidden behind a fair amount of dust between us and the star, and even when it blows up, um, the explosion might not be as impressive as you might have wished. And that's the reason why we've not observed this yellow hypergiant before, despite how luminous it is normally. Yeah, there are several reasons. One is the extinction from dust in the Milky Way. And the, fact, uh, the other thing is that the Milky Way is a very crowded region. There are a lot of stars there. And so it's very easy to miss things that are very interesting. And this is spot in the plane of the, uh, the Milky Way. And so there is an awful lot of confusion. If it hadn't been for the IRAS detection, no one would have picked this up as anything interesting. And you mentioned before it took you two years to realise what type of object it was. Why was this the case? It was very hard to determine the distance to the object. Uh, we couldn't do that from the, the Vizier, the VLT observations themselves. Uh, we had to get a spectrum. 
in that spectrum, we found uh, evidence for absorption along the line of sight between us and the star. And from the velocity range of that absorption, we could see that it could not be at one kiloparsec, 3,000 light years, that it was supposed to be. It had to be much further away. We finally settled on a distance between uh, 4,000 and 5,000 parsec. So it was likely to be much brighter than we previously understood. That made it a lot brighter than we first thought, and it turned it from a post-HGB star into a supergiant. Going back to these shells, what are they made of? I think you mentioned they were made of dust. What kind of dust is this? It's obviously not the stuff our hoovers pick up. No, it is not made out of uh, of egg yolk either. <laughs> so, uh, the stuff that we see is indeed dust, which are very small particles, solid particles, which you find in space. Uh, and these ones condensed in the wind from the star. And they consist of magnesium, uh, silicon, oxygen. Uh, the closest that you can get to it that we know about is sand. So in a way, this star is surrounded by its own sandstorm. Uh, it have, has in fact three shells, not two. You only see two, but when we looked at, in detail at the data, it turns out that the star itself that we saw in the images was not a star. We oh. saw an other shell that was obscuring the star itself. And so there is a very compact shell around the star, pretending to be the star itself. So how old are these shells? Yeah, they're not that old. They're ejected in the last couple of hundred years. That's very short on the lifetime of a... It's a very star. short thing, and it happens with, these, with stars in this uh, this phase of stellar evolution. Uh, for instance, P. Cygnus is another star in this phase, and we know that had an eruption about 500 years ago. Asia Carina is a star in this phase. Eta Carina also has had several eruptions, but Eta Carina is more luminous, it is, so it is not quite the same type of star. But clearly, in this particular phase of evolution, the stars become quite unstable, and it doesn't take much to make them eject... A lot of gas. So how much is a lot of gas? This particular star seems to have ejected about four solar masses in its recent history. If it started out as maybe 25, 30 solar masses, which we don't quite know, uh, that is a significant fraction of the star that was ejected. So it's four times the mass of our sun that's just blown off this huge star. That is correct, yeah. And what suddenly causes these massive mass loss periods? We don't know. There is clearly an instability in there. In the case of Eta Carina, which had an eruption, uh, of two eruptions even, in, in the 1800s, um, it looks like that star is a binary. And whenever the companion gets close to the, uh, the star itself, which happens every five years, uh, there is a chance of an ejection. So it seems to be binary-induced in that particular case. But what induces it in other stars, we really have no idea. And do these other stars show asymmetries, and this one is just perfectly spherical? Or is it a case that they're all spherical in their, their shells around the central star? Eta Carina is not spherical at any scale. Um, that shows beautiful bipolar lobes coming out. In this particular example, uh, we believe that this one is not spherically symmetric either. It looks very nicely symmetric on the uh, images, but it may be because the ejection happens in the plane of the sky. And if you look in a bipolar nebula, see the pole on, it will look very spherically symmetric. In this particular case, we have some evidence on polarization that there is some asymmetry present. So do you think that it's bipolar along the line of sight, or that it's actually flat against the plane of the sky, like a fried egg? Uh, it may be a fried egg in more than one way. Um, I would expect, though, that there is an, a faster ejection um, along the polar axis that's coming towards us and moving away from us. But we don't see strong evidence for that. So it's a bit like looking at a Smarties tube. So at one end you see just the circular face of it. Whereas if you'd looked at the side, what's really going on, you've got a whole long tube of Smarties and that sort of 
an analogy to describe the nebula. Yeah, maybe not quite as impressive an analogy as a fried egg, <laughs> um, but a smarties tube. We'll keep that in mind for our next nebula that we discover. <laughs> you have to make an impressive colour table for smarties. This interview starting to make me hungry. <laughs> so might there be more shells beyond those that we can see already? Yes, we see evidence from that from coal dust. Um, we haven't imaged that. Uh, we have it. Uh, we have some information from the uh, the IRAS data, which extend to 1600 microns, so much longer wavelengths than we can image from the ground, and that shows an excess emission over the models that we made for this object, and there must be colder dust further out. Uh, but we don't know whether that is as part of another shell. It might be as part of interstellar medium uh, dust that's being swept up by the wind from this star. Uh, there could be a variety of explanations. We might see these shells in longer wavelengths, sort of the millimetre range. Is that a job maybe for ALMA? Or? We certainly would like to observe this object with ALMA, um, but half the world wants to observe with ALMA, so it's very hard to get time on that. Uh, at the moment, we're trying to focus more into the central object itself. We've applied for time on the, the Very Large Telescope interferometer, an optical interferometer, to try to resolve the star itself and to get into this central core, this dust-star mix that seem to be right at the centre of our, uh, our nebula. So, so far we can only tell about the shells surrounding the, the hypergiant in the centre. We don't really know much about the central star. And what does this, these observations tell us about the object? The observations that we have tell us that the object is very luminous, uh, very unstable. We know the stellar temperature reasonably accurately, uh, so that's how we know it's a yellow hypergiant. Uh, what we would like to know is the abundances what kind of elements are coming out of the star. A massive star should be quite efficient in making nitrogen. Uh, do we see that? So we'd like to get a detailed spectrum of the star. We would like to see what happens with this dust right at the position of the star itself. Is that a new shell that's being formed at the moment? Is that dust that was left behind when the rest of the shells were rejected? Is it maybe the polar outflow that we just see projected onto the star? So there is a variety of questions which we still like to answer about this object. So the production of dust is quite an important topic. Perhaps you could tell us why it's kind of important in a more galactic scale or beyond just the realm of the star itself. The dust in the universe is a nightmare. It hides so many things from view. It is opaque, so you can't see through it. There are regions in the galaxy where you've got something like a hundred magnitudes of extinction. Well, that means just not bothering opening the dome of your telescope. That adds about that much extinction to your line of sight. Um, so there are places that we can't see anything, and it seems all the interesting bits are hidden by the dust. But the dust itself is also uh, useful to us. The Earth is made out of that kind of dust. If you don't have the dust to begin with, you can't make the rocky planets. And so it, it works both ways. The dust that we have in the universe comes primarily from old stars, evolved stars. And in this particular context, the yellow hypergiant here is an old star. And so these stellar winds, which make star die, are also the place where the dust grains are formed. So these stellar winds are also important for... Are they important for driving star formation then as well? Or do they have the kind of effect that uh, supernova shockwaves have when they kind of gather up dust to create stars? There is a lot of energy that comes out of these stars. They're, they're very luminous. Even though there are very few of these stars, they account for a significant fraction of the total luminosity of a galaxy. So they also have a lot of effect on their environment. Uh, because they're young, because they don't live very long, uh, they're still surrounded by the remnants of the cloud from which they formed. And the stellar winds from the star can compress 
these clouds. Now, whether that triggers star formation is a good question. Um, it might also uh, cause more turbulence in the interstellar medium. Uh, we see that in some of our modeling of the stellar wind interface with interstellar medium. And in that case, it might actually suppress star formation because turbulence is quite an important parameter that uh, governs star formation. So we really don't know what the effect is. Triggered star formation is a very popular model these days, uh, but it does need confirmation. So where next for studies like this? What do you hope to uh, go on to do? And this object was a bit of an accidental find. We hadn't expected a yellow hypergiant. We weren't interested in yellow hypergiants to begin with. We are now. Uh, but our main goal of the research is still to find out how the post AGB stars evolve. So to fill in this missing million years of stellar evolution. It's not a million years, it's only about 10,000 years that's missing. Uh, but one of the things that happens there is that uh, the structures that you see in planetary nebulae form. So all these bipolar shells, these beautiful structures, the rings of the ring nebula, uh, they form somewhere in this phase of evolution. The stars that eject these nebulae are round. As far as we can tell, the winds that come off these stars are round. So at what point do you start to deshape, deform a round nebula into the structures that we see in planetary nebula? Uh, that is still a major problem to resolve. And that is the one we want to get back to now that we've solved the problem of the Friday. So planetary nebula, are they quite different structures to the one that we're looking at in the Friday nebula? Or are they somewhat similar in the mechanism that produces them? They're very similar. Um, in fact, all uh, cool stars that are in this phase of evolution, uh, whether normal mass stars like an, an ACB star or a uh, supermassive star like Eta Carina, seems to lose mass in very similar ways. Uh, the dusty winds and the structures are very similar which is one of the reasons that it took us two years to find out whether this was a post-AGB star or a hypergiant. We know it now. Uh, but clearly the physics that goes on and the physics of the shaping is very similar in both group of objects. So what will this nebula go on to become as it, and the star itself, what will that go to next as it evolves further? At some stage we expect it to lose so much of its mass that most of the hydrogen in the star is gone. And you begin to expose uh, the regions in the star where the abundances have been changed by nuclear burning, the nuclear fusion. Um, when that happens, the star becomes more like a Wolverine star, as it is called. It becomes much hotter, so it is uh, many ten thousands of degrees uh, on the surface temperature. It has no longer shows much hydrogen. It will still have a strong wind, but much faster than the wind it has at the moment. Uh, the next phase of evolution after that is probably when it blows up as a supernova. But that particular timing of that event is very hard to predict. And you as you're looking for protoplanetary nebula and this yellow hypergiant, are the type of material surrounding the stars similar as well? There is a lot of similarities. These stars are uh, what you call oxygen-rich. Uh, means the abundances are dominated by oxygen. And that means the dust is dominated by oxygen. And which gives you this silicate, this sand structure around it. Around ACP star, you can also get carbon-rich objects. And then the abundance is changed and the dust becomes much more like soot and not at all like sand. And the colour, the size, everything is different in that kind of dust. You never see that around these supermassive objects like this hypergiant. Those only show the, uh, the sand type of dust. And what causes this difference? It's hard to give an, a unique answer to that because the, even the massive stars can become carbon-rich. The carbon gets formed from the nuclear burning inside the star. So it is self-produced carbon. Uh, but the massive stars do that as well. They just don't do it as well as the lower mass stars. Uh, when a star becomes a Wolverine star, it is carbon-rich. 
And so even the supermassive stars do become carbon rich, but at that point in their evolution, they do not produce dust. So there is a difference there between the, the lower mass stars like the sun and the massive stars like this object. So that's an easy way to spot the Wolf-Riot type stars, but this earlier stage of evolution is harder to see. Yes, although even in the wolf riot type uh, evolution, you can still have confusion because the central stars of planetary nebulae go through a phase where they also look like wolf riot stars. And it took quite a while before people realized how to distinguish the um, the low-mass wolf riot stars inside planetary nebulae from the high-mass wolf riot stars, the real ones. And so there is confusion everywhere. Okay, so I think that about wraps it up. Thank you very much, Albert, for that exciting interview. Sorry, that's an awful joke. It's a pleasure, but I guess calling an object a fried egg invites these kind of uh, of jokes. Thanks for that, Libby and Leo. And now here's Jen talking to Stella Offner about star formation. I'm here today with Dr. Stella Offner from the Harvard Smithsonian Center for Astrophysics. Welcome to the Jobcast. Thank you. So your work is on star formation. That's right. Can we start off with the general consensus of what we think is the way that stars are formed? All right, so I mostly work on the formation of low-mass stars, that is, stars like our sun. Uh, the way they typically form is from very large, massive clouds of gas. Um, these clouds are very, very low density, that is, far below the density of any vacuum that we can achieve in, in the lab here on Earth, so maybe on average only a few hundred or a few thousand particles per centimeter cubed. So in these giant clouds, um, observers call it like they see it, giant molecular clouds. <laughs> they're large. They're made of molecular gas. Um, these clouds are a few to maybe 10 parsecs across and contain anywhere from 100 to uh, maybe a million uh, solar masses for the largest ones. So these uh, clouds of gas go ahead and uh, become gravitationally unstable, so gravity plays a big role, and then they form individual stars out of this collapse process that occurs and is ongoing through these clouds. So what molecules are we talking about here? Is it just kind of hydrogen? Yes, molecular hydrogen is the dominant one. Okay, so you have this collapse of a cloud of gas. Is it really as, I mean, how do we know that that happens? Do you do simulations or do you, is this just from observations? Well, both. Um, star formation is pretty well studied, so there's a number of people uh, who do observations of these clouds, including Gary Fuller here at Manchester. Now, I work on uh, the theory side, so I do simulations of these clouds. Um, they're very turbulent, so in some cases we can really treat these as a fluid dynamics problem. We have very high-velocity turbulent gas, we add in gravity, and then we can hopefully get right what's going on in the clouds. So you said that that's uh, low mass stars are kind of like the sun. What are the mass limits on those? Well, it really depends on who's studying them. So to some people, low mass stars is less than a solar mass. So the median uh, star, if you look at a large cluster of stars, the median star mass is about a quarter of a solar mass. Okay. Uh, so some people put the cutoff between low mass and high mass at a few solar masses. Some people, it's about eight. Um, eight so it just depends who you talk to. That's right. And what is it that stops higher mass stars forming in this way? Um, sometimes it's just about having enough gas. So most of the molecular clouds that are near us are quite small. So 
if you don't have a large clump with, say, 100 solar masses in it, you can't form a 100 solar mass star. Yeah. Okay, it's, it's just that simple. Yes, that's, <laughs> we think that that's really why it is. Um, you really just need a lot of gas, and it needs to be dense, high-column density gas to form high-mass stars. And so in this process, you have a protostar. Yes. And in your talk today, you discussed a couple of problems with protostars that we don't quite understand. Could you tell us what those are? Yes, one of the unsolved problems with protostars is one of trying to understand how long stars accrete their gas. So if we look at theoretical models and predict how long stars accrete their gas, maybe 100,000 years or 200,000 years, then that means protostars should be a certain brightness or a certain lumin luminosity. But when we look at these local star-forming regions near us, protostars are actually a lot dimmer than the the theoretical models predict. Okay, and do you have an explanation why? Well, there's a number of things that could be happening. One is that the star formation time could be longer than current theoretical models predict. One possibility is that these low-mass stars could be hiding their luminosity somehow. Well, how do you hide it? Well, you could have very short, very intense bursts that are very rare. In order to see these bursts, we would need to have a really large number of protostars to catch one happening. But in our local regions, we only have maybe a few hundred protostars that are well mapped and well understood and well studied. So it might not be a large enough sample, and maybe these bursts really are happening, it's just they're so rare um, that we don't catch them. So this is a burst in terms of increasing how much stuff is accreted onto the star. That's right. So it's an elevated accretion rate that happens for a very brief time, but could account for as much as a quarter of the mass of the star over the whole time that the burst could happen. And what kind of signatures would we see if we were observing one? What would change with the star? Well, we do see some of these bursts in older type objects like T. Tauri stars. Uh, these stars are special because they're optically revealed. So there's not quite so much gas, but they still have an accretion disk. So they're still accreting a bit of gas. So when one of these bursts happens, the luminosity goes up by a factor of 100 in a short amount of time, say in a year. So you're looking at this star and... You Many of these stars have been observed for decades, and all of a sudden, in a given year, the luminosity will start to increase sharply and keep on going until it's elevated by a factor of 100 relative to what it started out with. Wow. Are these bursts something that an amateur astronomer could see with a backyard telescope, or is this, do you need those really big telescopes on top of mountains to see? No, you, I bet an amateur could actually see them. Um, there was one that was found last year. Um, they managed to catch it with quite a number of telescopes, but I'm pretty sure that if you had a very good optical telescope in your backyard, you might have been able to see it. But probably not from Manchester because it's too no. cloudy. <laughs> no. You said that these are very rare. How many have we seen? Uh, we've observed about 20 of these in the last 70 years. Wow, so very, very rare then. Yep. And do you have any ideas what maybe triggers these bursts? Well, so we think it's related to a very elevated accretion rate under the star. So the question is, what can be uh, stirring up the gas around the star that could make the accretion rate go way up? There are a couple of different models um, that can account for it. One of the simplest is just the idea that some of these stars might have a companion, and if the companion interacts with a disk, it will disturb the disk and create clumps, which can cause an elevated accretion rate. 
Probably what is more likely to be happening is some kind of instability in the disk. So these accretion disks around the star are not necessarily nice and smooth, but there's all kinds of turbulence and other things going on in there. So, for example, if the disk becomes too massive, gravity can take over and create large clumps of gas that will uh, invect into the star and then accrete. So anything that causes instability in the disk could create these clumps, which could create one of these large bursts. So how often do you see this in all young stars, or is this something that you only see in a few? It's very rare, yes. That's part of the problem. Um, we think that these uh, accretion events um, occur maybe uh, 1% or 0.1% of the formation time that uh, the star is accreting gas. And if we only observe a couple hundred protostars in a close star-forming region, we may not even catch any of them doing this. So taking a step back again, I don't think we touched on how long the actual, like, the initial star formation takes. Mm -hmm. That's a good question, and it's one that we're still trying to constrain. Uh, we have theoretical models for that, but one of the problems um, that's historically been a problem in star formation is that what we get for theory and what we see observationally disagree somewhat. So based on theoretical models, stars might take I don't know, maybe 100,000 years to accrete most of their gas. But observationally, if that's what's happening, then we expect these young protostars to be much brighter than they actually are. So maybe um, it takes half a million years or a few hundred thousand years longer than what theoretical models usually suggest. These accretion disks around the stars that might cause these episodic um, outbursts, uh, would they be the material that then planets would form out of? That's right. Yeah. So these disks last for maybe 1 million to 10 million years um, at the very tail end, and it's at this later stages of a few million years that maybe we start to get planet formation. I noticed on your website you have quite a lot of nice animations of all of this. How, yes. for, how, how much time on a computer does that take to run those? Um. So the simulations, I run them at um, National Supercomputing Centers in the U.S. <laughs> right. Um, so typically, um, in computer time, maybe 50,000 hours, maybe a bit more, depending upon how much physics is in the simulation. Oh. And yeah. th are they pretty accurate now? Are those, I'm kind of wondering, are those mo movies what we would see if we could kind of speed this all up? I hope so, because if it wasn't, <laughs> then that means that uh, the simulations are not right. <laughs> but um, it's an ongoing problem to actually compare the simulations and observations to try and get the things that we can't see and make predictions for what observers should see as we go to higher and higher telescope resolution. So if these young stars are forming in clouds of gas, what kind of telescopes do people use to observe them so that you can compare your simulations with them? Um, people look in various uh, wavelengths. Uh, one common one is to map the clouds in the millimeter emission. Okay. And that gives you a sense of the column density of the cloud. Another thing you can do is try and look at the cloud in the infrared, like with the Spitzer Space Telescope. That will tell you where young protostars actually are. So this is micron uh, wavelength emission. Um, and then there's going to be some huge... Um, results coming out from ALMA, and ALMA has the capability to do interferometric observations in a number of wavelengths and actually look at molecules 
um, and not just continuum type emission. And what's the next step for this research? Where is it going? Um, there are a number of outstanding problems in star formation that we're trying to explain and understand. One of them is simply the distribution of masses that stars have. Um, this is observationally well constrained, but theoretically we're still trying to understand where this comes from. Also, the multiplicity of stars is an open problem. Our sun is a single star, but many, if not most, stars actually have a companion. So trying to understand what the initial multiplicity is of stars and where it comes from is also pretty huge. So there are quite a number of outstanding problems. So when you say the kind of mass range, what do we see stars forming? What, what low mass do you have to get to before it stops being a star? Usually the uh, limit between brown dwarfs, which are, do not uh, fuse hydrogen, is about 0.08 solar masses. Okay. So these are still somewhat bright, but they don't have the same nuclear uh, fusion going on that our sun does. And the, you said about binary stars or multiple star systems. So is there a completely different formation process for those, or is it just maybe that the sun started off with a companion and it disappeared? Or Yeah, it, our sun probably didn't have a companion, although it's really hard to tell because uh, maybe the companion um, became unbound or, um, or something dynamically happened, uh, but it's probably unlikely. Most of these stars with companions have um, spacing or separations between the companions of maybe a few AU to a thousand AU. Uh, and, I mean, various things can happen and the separations can evolve over time. But, yeah, probably our sun never had it. Okay. But when you have multiple stars, they all form from one, one cloud of gas? Or would it be different clouds of gas that then kind of come together? Um. Well, they form out of the same molecular cloud, uh, but they might form um, in different cores and then migrate uh, together. That's a possibility. And another problem that you talked about was a spread in the age of stars that you see. Now, is this, to me, that doesn't seem like a problem. Is that a problem? Um, it depends. So the question is, when you have a cloud that's forming stars, how long does the star formation last? So there are some people that say, well, star formation in a given cloud should only go on for maybe a million years. You can imagine that if we look at clusters that appear to have stars forming that have an age spread of a few million years, that would conflict with a short formation time. So if you think that star formation in the clouds can go on for a few million years, 10 million years, then there's no reason why uh, all the stars need to form at once. They can form in a nice spread out fashion, and some of the stars can just be much older than others. That's all very interesting. Thank you very much for talking to us today. Thanks for the interview. Thanks for that, Jen. And in our final interview, Megan talked to Kirsten Gottschalk about Skynet. So I'm talking to Kirsten Gottschalk from ICRA, who is one of the people behind the Skynet, which is a new distributed computing project, which is looking at astronomical data. So tell us all about the Skynet, Kirsten. So as you said, Megan, it's a distributed computing project aiming to use your spare computing power because I don't know if you know this, but your computer is bored. It's sitting there with spare computing power that we could use to process radio astronomy data. And who knows, maybe we could discover something amazing. Cool. So this is, it's radio data from which, what kind of telescopes? 
Uh, well, it's, fr it's from radio telescopes. To start with, what we're doing is we're processing data from a survey called HiPass that was taken with the Parkes radio telescope here in Australia. And the aim is to process data that's already been processed to prove that our system works and that distributed computing is a good solution for radio astronomy data. And then after we finish processing that data, we're going to move on to some simulated data that from ASCAP to maybe help determine the best way to process that data. And then we'll move on to real data from other radio telescopes around the world. Okay, so what's ASCAP? ASCAP is the Australian Square Kilometre Array Pathfinder, and it's currently under construction in Western Australia at the site that is the core, candidate core site for the SKA, the Square Kilometre Array. It's going to have 36 dishes all connected together. It's being built by CSIRO here in Australia, and it's going to be a very powerful survey telescope. So its aim is to survey the entire southern sky looking for different radio sources. So the Skynet will take data from ASCAP, this telescope, and will process it to find those sources and tell the astronomers, oh, you should look here, you've got something here. What kind of objects are you actually going to be looking at? I mean, are you, are you looking for aliens or are you looking for pulsars or what kind of things are you looking for? It really depends on the survey. I think mostly we're going to be looking for radio galaxies, so galaxies that are out there that are emitting strong radio signals as opposed to strong visible light. Uh, we might find signals from pulsars. It depends what data we start processing. That's the great thing about the Skynet is that it uses your computing power, but the scientists can choose whatever they want to do with that computing power. So if they have some data and they need to look for some pulsars, they can change what happens with the data. If they want to look for aliens, they can do that too. So they, they can control it from this end, depending on what data we've got going. Okay, cool. So this is kind of like the SETI at Home project, but working in much more diverse parts of astronomy. Yeah, exactly right. So it's very similar in that SETI at Home used your spare computing power as well, but they were simply just looking for extraterrestrial signals from extraterrestrial life, but we're going to be looking for a range of different things. So any type of astronomy that uses radio data could be um, used with the Skynet. So why do you need the Skynet? Why have you not got computers that are big enough to process all these data sets anyway? Well, at the moment, we do have computers that are big enough, but supercomputers are very expensive. And as telescopes like ASCAP and maybe even the Square Kilometre Array in the future, as they start coming online, they're going to produce more data than we've ever had before. And it's actually a real challenge for us to deal with all of this information. We don't have computing power, powerful enough for these telescopes that are the next generation, the ones that are coming in the future. So we need solutions for what we're going to do with all of this data. Now, it's probably not going to be all process through distributed computing through your, you know, your home computer donating its spare time. But this is a solution that might help science that couldn't be done because maybe the science couldn't afford to buy some time on a supercomputer. And we can say, oh, look, we've got some, you can use some computing power over here. So maybe other science will get done that couldn't get funding or uh, we can complement the supercomputers that will be built for ASCAP and the SK and take some of the load. So what kind of computer do you need to take part in this? I mean, can it, does it run on Windows, Macs, Linux? Any type of computer. So we have, um, it's all run through uh, what we call Java. So that Java is a program someone else created and it's on every computer. And we run completely within Java, which means we're very secure. We have no access to the rest of your computer at all. We just run within that Java section. And um, it means that we also can run on any computer. So Windows, Mac or Linux, it doesn't matter. 
And we also, instead of just using the pop-up, you can use it within a web browser with a pop-up. You can also download, if you want, an automatic software piece of software that just automatically, whenever your computer is on, is donating to the Skynet. And that you never see, it's always in the background. And we have a, a piece of software for Mac, PC, and Linux as well. Okay, cool. So, but it doesn't sort of take over your computer. So if you're, if you're doing something else that's like heavily using the processor, it doesn't impact this, having this kind of running doesn't impact on what you're normally doing. Not at all. It's designed that if you need to use all of your computing power, the Skynet will do nothing. But if you walk away and aren't using it at all, it'll use all of it. So it's, it scales up and down depending on how much you need to use of your computer. We've actually tested the program the Skynet is based on. It's called Nereus. It was developed at Oxford University by um, Dr. Reese Newman. And we've tested it while people who play like very memory intensive games that had it playing running in the background while they were playing their games and they didn't notice a difference at all to the gaming and as I'm if you've ever played a computer game I'm sure you'll know that if there's anything going on in the background that's using up memory you do notice it when you're playing the game so it, it definitely scales right back if you need that computing power but then if you walk away or you leave it overnight it'll use all of your computing power. So we launched the project three weeks ago on the 13th of September and we had amazing response. We actually had 3,000 members sign up in the first 24 hours, which we were astounded by. Like we knew that people would be excited about being able to help astronomy, but we didn't realize just how much. And we've been so <laughs> impressed with the community that's built up around the Skynet already. Like we just surpassed 100,000 hits on our website um, yesterday and it's just been absolutely crazy. Wow. How much of that is due to the name and how many Terminator fans do you have on your, on your forum? I think we have quite a few Terminator fans on our <laughs> forum. No one's really admitting to it just yet. I think we did get a lot of publicity because of our name and that's one of the reasons that we chose the name, of course, is to help get our name out there. But I think people have come along and are staying because of the ability to be involved in radio astronomy and radio astronomy is really taking off at the moment. It's an amazing science and we're at the point where we're starting to build and design amazing instruments. I mean, the square kilometer array will be the world's biggest science experiment when we finish it. And the Skynet is going to be part of that. So if your computer finds something really cool, um, do you get credit for that? Like with Galaxy Zoo, if you find some a really interesting object like um, Hanny Van Arkel did with Hanny's Volwerp, she got credit for it and she's now on a lot of the scientific papers. If your computer finds something really exciting through the Skynet, what happens? So we theoretically could track that discovery back to your individual computer, but we like to think that we're working as a team together and everyone's donating a little bit of their computing power so that we create this awesome thing, the Skynet, which has the power to make those discoveries. So that will be, instead of attributed back to you, it will be attributed back to all the members who are donating because it is a completely random chance what piece of data your computer's processing and you don't actually have to do anything. It just sits in the background and does it itself. So it will be the Skynet as a team team that discovers something rather than an individual person. So will we see the Skynet credited on papers in the future? Who knows, the, maybe. The Skynet collective. <laughs> the Skynet members. Is there any chance of it becoming sentient? Well, if you go onto the Skynet Twitter, it might have something to say about that itself, but we promise it's got no <laughs> nuclear weapons, it's got all good intents, and we're watching it very carefully. Excellent. Well, best of luck with it. So where can people go if they want to get involved? 
theskynet.org. You need the the at the beginning, so theskynet.org. And you can sign up to be a member there and you can um, look at how many credits people are earning. You can join an alliance or maybe form an alliance of your own and get together with your friends. And there's also a prize, I should add. If you reach a certain target, we haven't set the target just yet, but there's a target number of credits that you have to reach. And if you reach that first, you actually get an all expenses paid trip out to Western Australia to visit the Murchison, which is where ASCAP is being built and where the SKA might be built to see the telescopes that are being built there. Okay, so go check out theskynet.org and join in. Thanks for your time, Kirsten. No worries. Thanks for that, Megan. And now it's this time of the show where we put everything that we don't know where else to put. It's the odds and ends. So I want to start first by congratulating three scientists, the three physicists who won the Nobel Prize because they're cosmologists and cosmology rocks. No bias. Not at all. Absolutely not. Um, so it's Paul Perlmutter, Adam Rees, and Brian Schmidt who won the Nobel Prize for their discovery that the expansion of the universe is speeding up through observation of distant supernova. And uh, way to go, guys. And again, go cosmology. So dark energy is basically all their fault. Pretty much. And we actually interviewed Brian Schmidt once in April Extra 2008, which was actually the National Astronomy Meeting 2008 edition, all about dark energy, but obviously before he won the Nobel Prize. That's a cool one. I'd like to listen to this one. I have a a pretty good joke about dark energy and dark stuff. I don't know if uh, you know PhD comics. Go on. If it's really bad, we'll just edit it out. Okay. Well, it's just someone saying, well, you know, when astronomers don't know what something else, they call it dark, like dark matter, dark energy. So true. And you have a PhD student next who's just like, ooh, I have a dark thesis. (laughs) Come on, that's good. (laughs) It is. I'm glad Jen's not here because she's writing her thesis. (laughs) If she heard that, then it would probably ring a little bit too true. (laughs) How about you guys? Do you have anything? Yeah. um, NASA have launched a cool new website called Space Station Live, which gives detailed live information about what's happening on the ISS, including video feeds and science schedule. Uh, so you can see the operational data from their instruments. So you can see temperature and pressure from the Destiny Lab from their console displays. And you can see the daily schedule for the crew members from the crew timeline area. The website's still in beta, but there is data available, interactive features, and it will be accessible on mobile devices. You can see large diagrams of the current configuration of the ISS and what time it is on board. And the website will be on the show notes. Very cool. That is really cool. I want to like have it 24-7 in my apartment and pretend I'm an astronaut. The only problem is the floating around. I can't float around in my flat. <laughs> <laughs> I have to install like, you know, cables and pulleys and it might get messy. I have to find something else. If you're really into it, I mean, <laughs> then you can pretend you can write up your own schedule, what Melanie's doing yeah, today. Yeah, and I'll, I'll put it on online. Yeah. yeah, I should do that. <laughs> <laughs> and you can also follow people tweeting already from the ISS, so I think it's really nice that you can see what's going on. It's not like some kind of secret among scientists. We can all see what's happening day by day. I have a couple of things. The first one is about an X-ray telescope called ROSAT, which you might Rosette. have yeah, which you might have heard of. Well, I don't want to be mean, but ROSAT's gonna crash and burn <gasps> up in the atmosphere. No, 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 no. The end of ROSAT. Actually, the end of ROSAT was some time ago. It was launched in 1990, a project led by Germany, also supported by the UK and the USA. 
and it actually operated until February 1999. So for about 12 years, 12 and a half years, it's just been gradually losing height because there's a little bit of atmosphere, a little bit of drag up there. It's gone down from about 500 and something kilometers to two or 300 and something kilometers, which means wow. that pretty soon, because it has no propulsion system, it's just going to fall back into the Earth's atmosphere. And we don't know exactly where it's going to land. That's really sad. This I sounds really like Roseanne. This sounds like a deja vu to me. A little bit. But the last one didn't hit anyone. It didn't. And, the, and, and there was about a 1 in 3,200 chance of the upper atmosphere research satellite hitting a person, which it didn't do. This one apparently has a 1 in 2,000 chance of striking someone. So you can expect a lot more over-the-top newspaper headlines along the lines of, and now another satellite is sent hurtling onto people's heads. The chance of it actually hitting you personally on the head, or on, on any part of your body really, are about 1 in 10 trillion. So really don't worry about it. Don't look up at the sky when you're crossing the road or something. And if you are going to thinking about hiding in your house, there's a lot more chance of you meeting a horrible, horrible accident walking through your front door than there is of you being hit by this satellite. Yeah, but if it does hit you, then really, really, well, you were the unluckiest person on Earth anyway, so... Yeah. Play the lottery instead. Yeah. And the final thing is the draconid meteor shower. So more things flying into Earth's atmosphere, but this time little natural rocks. <laughs> There's a comet called Jacobini Zinner, which orbits the sun every 13 years. And the interesting thing about it is that the little particles that it's strewn about its orbit aren't fully spread around about its orbit yet, which means that when the Earth passes through it, we don't know how many meteors we're going to get in that particular shower. So earlier this month... It was a once-in-every-13-year close pass, and that means that the shower would be more intense. Some people thought there might be thousands of meteors per hour. In fact, it was cloudy, so for most of us there were zero oh, <laughs> visible meteors. That's but not it, enough meteors no, no. for a shower. Zero. No. But using radio observations, people were able to say that it peaked at about 300 meteors per hour. Whoa. Which is a lot. It's like five a minute. So using your imagination... That was really spectacular. But it can be every day with my imagination. While you float around in the ISS in your apartment. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> <laughs> and now, Tim O'Brien answers all your astronomical questions. First question this month is from Rupin, and he says, I've located a star that seems to be flickering several colours in an odd way. The star's called Canopus, but I'd like to know why it flickers and why in different colours. And he also says, P.S., you guys rock. So thanks for that, Rupin. Um, actually, so what you're talking about is twinkling. So if you look at stars in the sky, particularly stars that are quite low down, um, they often seem to twinkle bright stars low down, you know, not far above the, the horizon. And it's actually caused by the atmosphere, which is why the ones that are lower down are affected most, because the light from the stars passing through more atmosphere. And it's basically just due to turbulence. So the atmosphere is not completely steady. And on a bad night, um, there's a lot of motion of, of different cells, we call them different sort of uh, patches of air in the atmosphere that are of different densities. And as the light, as the rays of light from the star pass through them, um, then they get refracted, so they get bent through these regions of dense and less dense air. So the path of the light is constantly changing as these turbulent cells move about in the atmosphere. And so we see the brightness of the star changing rapidly, which is what you call twinkling. 
Now, because this uh, this refraction um, is actually an effect that changes with wavelengths, so the angles through which the light um, is bent changes depending on the, the wavelength of light, then you actually see the colours affected differently. So the star can actually change in brightness rapidly and change in colour rapidly because the blue light's taking a slightly different path to the red light, for example. And the effect, this twinkling effect, is actually... Uh, less pronounced for planets. So if you happen, for example, to look at the planet Jupiter, which is bright at the moment, um, then you tend to see less of an effect because uh, the planet itself is a sort of disk. It's not a point-like object. So if you can imagine the sort of disk of the planet, um, then you get the twinkling effect at different points on the disk, but it sort of averages out over the over the disk. So you don't notice it twinkling as much when you look up with your eyes. Um, so we call this seeing. So if the seeing is good, you see a nice steady uh, point of light for the star. If it's bad, then you see this sort of twinkling. And that would mean the images, you know, the dancing about all the time, you get a very blurred view. Now, we can actually attempt to correct for this with modern telescopes uh, with what we call adaptive optics. So the VLT, for example, the very large telescope in Chile, actually has a system where after the main big mirror, the 8-metre mirror, uh, there are several other mirrors in the light path, and you can actually take one of these smaller mirrors and you can deform it, you can change its shape uh, very rapidly in real time to attempt to correct for this sort of dancing about of the image due to the turbulence. It's actually a bit easier if you do this at slightly longer wavelengths than the visible light, so somewhere in the in the near part of the infrared, because the size of the stable patches in the atmosphere is actually larger uh, at these longer wavelengths. Now, in order to do this correction, you actually need quite a bright uh, star because you need quite a lot of light coming through in order to sort of, uh, for, the, for the signal from the star to dominate over the noise. So because most stars are not that bright, um, or, or the, the, there's not very bright stars near the objects that we're interested in looking at, um, we can actually make artificial stars. And in this case, we use a laser, shine it up into the atmosphere. Uh, we can excite um, sodium atoms in a layer in the atmosphere about 90 kilometers above the ground. That produces this sort of, when you excite the, you put energy into these sodium atoms, they then glow. So you basically produce an artificial star close enough to your, uh, to the actual star or the, the object you're interested in making an image of that the light from it passes through the same um, turbulent regions of the atmosphere. And so you can use observations of the artificial star to correct for the turbulence and sharpen up the image of your uh, of your target. OK, the next question is from Matthew Hyman. And Matthew says, in the last Jodcast, I answered a question about the Milky Way colliding in the future with the Andromeda galaxy. And he's wondering why, if everything goes out from a central point, the Big Bang, how can two galaxies actually crash into one another? Is one galaxy moving out slower than the other? And he also says thanks and, and great work. So thank you for that, Matthew. Um, well, the answer here really is that um, when galaxies are close together, so like the Milky Way being relatively close to Andromeda, the force of gravity between these two galaxies, between us and Andromeda, is actually uh, strong enough to overcome the expansion of the universe. So actually galaxies in, in groups or clusters uh, are actually sort of orbiting one another in this group. The, the gravity is overcoming the expansion of the universe and they can actually crash into each other just like the Milky Way and Andromeda are coming together. So what people should really be doing when, the, when people talk about the expanding universe and they say things like all the galaxies are moving away from each other, they should really be a little bit more careful 
and they should say that clusters of galaxies are all moving away from each other rather than individual galaxies moving away from each other. Um, and that would be then accurate. And so I think that probably gets around your whole problem. It's not that every single galaxy is moving away from every single other galaxy. It's that clusters of galaxies are moving away from other clusters of galaxies. Next question this month is from Philip Jones, and he's asking about black holes. He says, can I please explain how black holes lose energy by radiation, and how does this form a jet of particles? Surely if it's a black hole, then nothing can escape from it. And also, if these particles are formed from vacuum energy, how come they form a jet and they're not present all the way around the event horizon? Okay, so there's really a bit of confusion here, actually, because uh, there's two different things involved. You're right, Philip, nothing can escape a black hole event horizon. If something passes in through the event horizon of a black hole, it can't get back out again unless it was somehow able to travel faster than the speed of light. And as we know, nothing can travel faster than the speed of light. So I think this arises, again, from perhaps people not being careful enough in their terminology. And when they talk about jets coming from black holes... They're talking about them coming from near the black hole or perhaps from the region around the black hole, not from inside the black hole itself. Now, these particles you're talking about that are formed from vacuum energy, that's called Hawking radiation. And that's a quantum effect where photons or other particles might radiate from the event horizon itself of extremely small black holes. So where some, basically some of the particles or photons would fall into the black hole, others radiate away. And that actually does lead to the to the energy and the mass of those tiny black holes uh, reducing and, and eventually it's called black hole evaporation, where the black hole eventually uh, disappears. And that effect, although predicted, hasn't yet been directly observed. Now, when you talk about jets coming from black holes, remember we should say jets coming from the regions around black holes. Well, yeah, this is a really commonly observed phenomenon. And in fact, one of the earliest, uh, it's one of the earliest discoveries really in radio astronomy. And when we first had radio telescopes back in the, the 1940s and 50s, we sort of mapped the radio sky and we found these very bright sources of radio waves. They called them radio stars because they sort of you know, looked a bit like point sources, a bit like stars in the radio sky. And one of them, for example, is called Cygnus A. It's one of the brightest radio objects in the skies in the constellation of Cygnus. Uh, looked like a bright spot of radio waves. And by studying that in greater detail... It was found to be, there was found to be a, a spot of, you know, there was a sort of blurry blob of visible light in the same, roughly the same direction. But the problem was that because the radio waves are so much longer than visible light, you get a much more blurred image in the radio. So it was really hard to tell, you know, where, which object the radio source was actually associated with in, in a visible image. So what we needed to do, what was developed at the time was this technique of interferometry were uh, instead of taking one telescope or one aerial that's picking up the radio waves, you take two aerials and you separate them by larger and larger distances. And that lets you effectively zoom in, lets you study smaller and smaller, tinier and tinier details in in the radio sky. And at Jodrell Bank in the 1950s, um, there were two astronomers called Jenison and Dasgupta, and they actually uh, used uh, one of these early interferometers with two aerials, and they gradually moved them apart by up to several kilometres, and they studied the structure of Cygnus A. And what they found was that as they moved them apart, 
So they were effectively able to zoom in and zoom into Cygnus A. This sort of bright spot of radio emission broke up into two spots. And when they measured the separation of these two spots of, of bright radio emission, they found that they were positioned outside either side of the optical, of the visible light source in this position. So this was really weird at the time. It was like, oh, we've got this this red, this optical object, this invis- seen invisible light, probably a, a galaxy, a sort of a fairly extended object, not a point-like thing like a star. But the radio waves turn out to be coming from two spots either side of it, well outside the visible galaxy. Now we now know, of course, that what's happened is deep in the heart of Cygnus A, this is a, a radio galaxy, an active galaxy, where, we, where there's a supermassive black hole. And as stuff sort of falls in towards that black hole, it sort of swirls around. It forms what we call an accretion disk. So a disk that's sort of swirling around. Stuff sort of moves through that, gas moves through that, and eventually disappears into the black hole. But somehow, and it's an effect that's not particularly well understood, um, it's a combination of the, the angular momentum, the spin of the the stuff as it falls in, and the magnetic field that's threading through it, um, that winding up effect results in jets of particles that shoot out in opposite directions, sort of perpendicular to the to the plane of this, this accretion disk. Um, these jets, this is outside the event horizon, so nothing's been, nothing's, there's no problem as far as things escaping from a black hole. This is before this stuff's passed into the event horizon. These jets shoot right out of the heart of this galaxy, beyond the visible galaxy, beyond the stars, and where these thin jets of material moving at almost the speed of light crash into the intergalactic medium, the stuff between the galaxies around around this particular galaxy, um, they're slowed down, just like, you know, firing a hose pipe, a jet of water into a sand pit. You sort of, uh, the, the water's slowed down in this big splash, basically. A lot of the kinetic energy of the jet is turned into... Uh, thermal energy produces the acceleration of particles, which leads to a lot of radio emission. So you've basically got these two bright spots either side where these two oppositely directed jets are crashing into the intergalactic medium around the galaxy. And the final question this week is from Martin Webb. And actually, he sent this in a little while ago, um, and he says, uh, I was wondering, is there any evidence that the speed of light in a vacuum, approximately uh, 29979258 meters per second. So that's 299,792,458 meters per second. Is there any evidence that that speed could be exceeded? Or will faster than light tra- travel always remain in the realm of science fiction? Now, as I say, actually, Martin sent this in uh, a month or two ago, a few months ago, actually. So this was before um, the announcement um, just a few weeks ago of the the possibility that neutrinos were travelling faster than the speed of light. So this was this result that uh, came out of some scientists in Italy who were measuring the the speed uh, of neutrinos that were being produced in CERN and then being detected in a neutrino laboratory in, in Italy. And they'd found this result that these neutrinos seemed to actually be travelling faster than the speed of light. Now, you know, we all know that Really, things ought not to be travelling faster than the speed of light. That's a that's a tenet of physics that's been around now ever since Einstein's special theory of relativity um, back in the early 1900s. So, that, so really, we think that there's something going to be wrong with this experiment. There's some measurement that's wrong. Perhaps actually, they've not measured the distance between the source of these neutrinos and the 
and the point at which they're measuring their arrival in Italy, maybe that distance has not been measured accurately enough and that's why they've got the, the speed wrong when they, when they measure the time difference. Or maybe there's some reason why the time difference isn't measured um, properly. It turns out that the speed of the neutrinos that they measure is something like um, 7 kilometres per second faster than the speed of light, which is about 300,000 kilometres per second. So if you can imagine 7 kilometres per second in in 300,000 kilometres per second. That's quite a significant difference. So it's maybe a bit surprising if we hadn't noticed this before. But anyway, um, you know, very interesting. And interesting in terms of the application of uh, science and how we do experiments. And perhaps one thing that's worth mentioning in terms of um, in terms of astronomy is how this relates to observations of neutrinos arriving from outer space. And in particular, the neutrinos that arrive from from the supernova that was spotted in 1987. It's called Supernova 1987A. And actually, this was the first uh, conference that I ever went to as a research student. Um, back in 1987, there was the first uh, conference about this was, was in uh, in Munich, um, in Garching. Uh, and I remember this, this, this whole thing very well. And one of the great things about Supernova 1987A was, is it's the nearest supernova to ourselves for hundreds and hundreds of years um, and so was incredibly well studied and one of the great results from it was that that uh, neutrinos were detected at three different observatories a little burst of about in total about uh, 20 odd anti-neutrinos were detected at three different observatories and they arrived about just several hours about three hours before the visible light was spotted from this from this supernova this was visible as a bright star in the sky um, just quite at night in the, in the large Magellanic cloud visible in the Southern Hemisphere, spotted independently by several astronomers on one particular night. And what happens with the neutrinos is that it was a prediction, really, of the, the theory of the uh, massive star uh, collapsing, uh, resulting in this supernova explosion. So, in fact, the inner parts of the star collapse in on themselves, creating um, a neutron star, some of which we observe as pulsars later. And the outer parts of the star uh, explode outwards um, and create these these big supernova remnants, like, for example, the Crab Nebula. Now, actually, when that neutron star is formed, one of the predictions is that in that, in that collapse, you would get a burst of neutrinos. Now, these neutrinos actually stream really easily through the body of the star because they're actually... They're actually really hard to detect. They only interact very weakly with matter. So, you know, they really don't interact at all with the, the body of the star. They stream out at very high speeds um, and they arrive at the Earth. And the light, the visible light from the uh, from the star actually only sets off when the, the shock wave resulting from the collapse of this uh, dense neutron star at the centre of the at the centre of the star, when that shock wave eventually reaches the surface of the star, then the surface of the star can, can can brighten, can expand and brighten, and that's when the visible light sets off from the supernova. So depending on you know the details of the calculation, the difference in time between the collapse of the central part of the star and the shockwave reaching the edge, if that dis- if that difference in time is several hours, that explains why the neutrinos arrive several hours before the, the visible light arrives. Now actually there were 20 odd of these things detected. But because they're so weakly interacting, 
There were billions of these things arrived from Supernova 987A, passing through every single square centimetre of of our detectors and even of us, our bodies, at the distance of the Earth's. But we only managed to actually detect uh, a few tens of them. Now, the reason that's relevant to this question as to whether things travel faster than the speed of light is because the distance to Supernova 1987A is fairly well known from observations of a of a ring of pre-existing um, matter that was probably ejected from the from the star that exploded sometime before the explosion, and that tells us the distance is about uh, one hundred sixty-eight thousand light years. In other words, the light um, took about one hundred sixty-eight thousand years to get here. So, if the neutrinos were travelling faster than light by, you know, this factor seven kilometers per second faster compared to three hundred thousand kilometers per second for the light, they'd have actually arrived about four years earlier. The light would have taken 168,000 years to get here, but the neutrinos, travelling a bit faster, would have arrived about four years earlier. And we, of course, saw them arrive just a few hours earlier. So that would really be evidence against the fact that these neutrinos really are travelling faster than the speed of light. Now, there are ways you might get out of this, and it's true to say that the types of neutrinos detected in these two experiments, the supernova experiment and the and the CERN Italian experiment are different. In one case the you know there are different types of neutrinos which have different energies and I guess you could argue that the way in which they travel may well be different. But it perhaps seems a bit unlikely that, that all this would lead to a burst of detection of neutrinos significantly above the background level just a few hours before this this supernova appeared in the visible sky um, seems a bit of a coincidence. So actually, that's a, that is an interesting um, that is an interesting result though that Martin actually uh, happened to have uh, sent us a question about this uh, exceeding the speed of light just uh, just a little while before actually this result came out about neutrinos. Worth watching that one and worth seeing what comes in about the the design of experiments and what it might be that explains that result in the end. Thanks for that, Tim. And now on to the feedback. We had no emails this time, and I'm very sad. Boo for emails. Emails so passe, apparently. Uh, Everyone's posting on the forum these days. Oh, okay. Don't worry. Susan Kelly, she posted a jod pic. From where? From the Parks Radio Telescope in New South Wales. So jealous. Which bills itself as the most beautiful radio telescope in the world. And I think it has a case, actually. Ah, oh, but I'm, I want to go there. I'm jealous. It's okay, I've been there. That doesn't help me being jealous. <laughs> <laughs> it really is spectacular, and um, and it was its 50th anniversary earlier this month. Happy birthday. Ooh. And <laughs> I really like in that picture, Susan Kelly's got an unusual white Jodcast t-shirt. There's white Jodcast t-shirts. I didn't even know. Maybe it's a wow. Southern Hemisphere thing. I don't oh, know. maybe. That's cool. And and the Park Telescope also, in that picture, as in all others, always puts me in mind of a peacock. How come? It sort of looks like, to me, especially when you see it from the back, it looks like the dish is kind of fanning out and going, look at me, I'm amazing. Mm, Maybe no one else has seen that. If you think it looks like a peacock, then... Post it on the forum. Yeah. (laughs) (laughs) And thanks also to Joe to the Oak, who pointed to a BBC television programme about amateur astronomers, and also for wishing Jen a speedy recovery from her cold. After infecting the rest of us, she has now recovered. And um, on Twitter, we'd like to thank Neil Bennett-Williams, Colin Ashley, and Alan Rowe, and everyone else who posted. Thanks, guys. That's awesome. On Facebook, thanks to Owen Roberts and Russ Jenkins. And uh, 
Just quickly, another reminder about the Jot Pub in London on November 12th. I can't go, so you guys have to go for me and drink for me. <laughs> Think about it. There's also going to be the trip to Greenwich Observatory and a pub somewhere in central London. We will let you know the details on the website. And if you want to get in touch with us, you can do so via the website at www.jotcast.net. On the forum at forum.jotcast.net. Via Twitter at twitter.com slash jodcast. On Facebook at facebook.com slash jodcast. On YouTube at youtube.com slash jodcast. Or for all your pictures on Flickr at flickr.com slash groups slash jodcast. So that's the end of uh, the episode. Thank you to Kirsten Gottschalk, Stella Offner and Albert Zilstra for the interviews. The editors were Mark Perver, Megan Argo, Jen Gupta and Tim O'Brien. The producer was Mark Perver. Until next time, Jod on. Jod on. Bye. Bye.